0: Freedom. As Americans, we we talk often about freedom. We cherish freedom. We celebrate freedom. We enjoy freedom much in our everyday lives, and yet we probably don't cherish freedom quite to the same degree as someone who has been in captivity. Someone who has experienced bondage and come from that into freedom knows it in an even greater way. In 1973, this photo was an iconic one captured by a news photographer, a stunning image of freedom, an Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who had spent a little over five years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, touching down at a base in California and for the first time seeing his family and stepping off that plane and experiencing sweet freedom as his family runs to meet him and his 15-year-old daughter leading the way. Just an iconic, wonderful glimpse into that moment of freedom. Imagine running from captivity into liberty. Freedom is at the core of the New Testament book of Galatians. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 3, that's where we're going to be today, picking up in the middle of the chapter. We've titled this series, Freedom by faith, because freedom is such a central part to Paul's teaching in this letter of what it is to have freedom in Christ, and he is desperately wanting to make sure that they don't stray off the path to lasting freedom, that they don't misunderstand what's been taught about having freedom in Christ. The Galatians were being misled. Paul had come and he had preached to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had come and he had preached and said, the death, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what you are to put your faith in. You are to trust in that for the forgiveness of your sins and for your ultimate freedom before God, freedom from the bondage of sin. And then these other religious teachers came along right after Paul, teaching very much like false religions do nowadays. Same kind of agenda which says, well, you gotta earn your freedom nothing's truly free, you've got to work for it in some way. You've you've got to be a a good person, you've got to make amends when you're not, because at the end of life it's kind of like there's this this giant scoreboard complete with video highlights of your life, and and, and there'll be a score of, of your good and kind things versus all of the arrogant and cranky and dishonest things, and you hope that the one will outweigh the other and you'll experience victory and not defeat. God's word to the Galatians, and, and, and intended for you and I, is that there is freedom in Christ. There is release from bondage to sin. There is release from the condemnation of the law. There is a glorious moment of running from darkness into light. I so want it to go back in here and come bursting out from the cave. It might be a little silly, but it's the only time I get to play up here all week, so... The gospel of Jesus Christ is the pathway to freedom, and this passage that we're looking at today is all about bondage and freedom. It starts with captivity, it starts with slavery, and then something profound is promised. Something will happen that sets captives free, and then we're going to move from there to see some of the fruit of this freedom, some of the benefits that we experience of what this freedom looks like and feels like. I'm going to read Galatians 3, starting in verse 15, going to work all the way down to verse 24. We'll actually go further today, but let me at least get through verse 24. Paul writes, "...to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified." Everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith i stop there. Justified by faith. This is where we left off last week. Bob taught so wonderfully from the verses just prior to this on that theme of being justified by faith, of being able to stand right before God, not on the basis of my own effort or works, but on the basis of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we need to be justified? You've no doubt dealt with people in life. Maybe you were one of these people who... Uh, Don't want to explain themselves. Just, you know, this is what it is. I did what I did. I am what I am. That's the way it is. Just deal with it. I'm not explaining myself. I don't have to justify myself for what I've done. you probably encountered those kind of folks along the way. God requires justification. One day when you stand before the creator of the universe, you will not be able to say, hey, I am what I am, and I did what I did, and that's the way it is. You will have to be justified. You will have to have a standing before God. And scripture says the only right basis for that is by faith in Jesus Christ, not by performance, not by works. And so what Paul does here in Galatians is he, he gives us a history lesson behind all this to try to to lead up to his point. And it's a lesson that starts with, with bondage, with captivity. He goes all the way back about 2,000 years before Christ, about 2,100 years before Christ to the time of Abraham. We'll, we'll back up just a, a little further than that, in fact, and go back to creation. God created Adam and Eve. He puts man and woman in the garden. They rebel against God. And Genesis 3 says they incur a curse. There's a penalty for rebelling against God, and the, the punishment, that curse, is death. There is separation from God. There is death that results from sin. That is the penalty. And so the the chief question of the Bible from that moment on in Genesis is now what? If, If man has been put into this perfect environment and has sinned and rebelled and fallen, now what? How is man rescued? How is he redeemed? Is there hope? If you're a diligent Bible reader, or at least you start your year in the Bible and you start in Genesis, one of the things you come across pretty soon are genealogies. You know, those so-and-so begat so-and-so or so-and-so fathered so-and-so, and and it it goes through the list of names. This one was the father. This was the son. He lived so many years. Then he had a son, and, and, and so on. Genesis 4 and 5 starts with the genealogy from Adam... To Noah. Then we go to the story of Noah. And so by Genesis 10, now we're getting the genealogy of Noah, starting with his three sons. And Genesis chapter 11 picks up that genealogy with one son in particular, Shem. And it works through the line of Shem. And so it's just this list of names. And Shem begot And and I think the name is Arpakshad, something like that. I'm sorry, I didn't use my little Hebrew pronunciation tool on that, but you can look at that one in Genesis 11 and see how you would say it. And you go about nine generations after Shem, and you come to Terah. Terah is born, and Terah fathers a son, and that son is Abram. And so, So far, we're just going through a pretty nondescript list of names. This one, born, lived, fathered, died, this one, and so on. And one day, for reasons that were not told, Terah, who was the father of Abram, takes his family and he begins to move toward the land of Canaan, stopping along the way in Haran. And it is there that this genealogy is interrupted. We've walked through the line of Shem down to Abram. And Genesis chapter 12, God speaks in the midst of this genealogy. And it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. What should strike us as interesting here is we've been reading this list of names. We haven't seen this name before, this Abram, and all of a sudden, God speaks to this one and says, I am sending you to this land, and I am giving you this remarkable promise that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a tremendous promise. And that is the heart now when he talks in Galatians 3 about the promise that we're going to see. This is the heart of that. So Abraham settles in this land where he's told to go by God. And a few chapters later in Genesis 15, God appears to Abram and he says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God speaking to Abram and making it clear that it wasn't just Tara's decision as sort of patriarch of the family to move them to a new place. God is working through all of this. God is sovereignly orchestrating to move Abram to this this promised land. And then it says God took Abraham outside, and he said in Genesis 15, look up and count the stars if you can. Look up at at the dark night and see the stars, and see if you can count them for as numerous as the stars in the sky are, so shall your descendants be. And Abram believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Here's a man who doesn't have any descendants at this point. He has no children. And God takes him out at night, and he says, count the stars. Well, I can't count the stars. They're too numerous to count. Well, that's, that's how numerous your descendants will be, Abram. Abram believes. It is by faith that he is declared righteous. It is by faith that he is justified before God because he believes God's promise at that point. And then a few chapters later, Genesis 15, describes God's way of, of sort of putting a stamp on that promise. It describes God making a one-sided covenant with Abram, we, we think of covenants. We tend to think of it's an agreement between two parties with both, both sides having terms. But the reality is it is God saying, that promise through you, through your offspring, to bring blessing to all the families of the earth, I am now adding to that a covenant that says, I will surely do this. I, I'm, I am putting certainty on that. And in fact, if you read the story in Genesis 15, Abraham is in a deep sleep, and he is envisioning this covenant as it is being made, but Abraham has prepared the ground for the covenant, and then he is in a deep sleep as it is being executed to make the very point that this is not two sides negotiating terms. This was not Abraham saying to God, okay, I understand, I'll do this, and I'll do that, and then you do this, and that's the way it all works. This is Abraham being a passive witness to God saying, I will do this, and in fact, I am making it certain with a covenant. All right, so this is Around 2100 B.C., Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. If you remember the story, Jacob's children ultimately end up in Egypt where Joseph has gone before them and he has prepared for them. God has prepared for them a place for, uh, to survive during the famine. And so the line of Abraham through Jacob now ends up in Egypt and within some generations they are now enslaved in Egypt. They have become captive. They have grown to the point that the Egyptians feel threatened, and they enslave them and make them work, and they spend 400 years in slavery. This is all some of the history that Paul's alluding to here, because then God raises up Moses, and and he sends Moses to Egypt to deliver the people, to be his instrument through whom he will release them from captivity and bring them back to the land that he had promised to Abraham. On their way to the promised land, they've come out of Egypt, they're heading to the promised land. God calls Moses up on the mountain and he begins to deliver to Moses the law. He begins to establish the law for those people. This is, these are the requirements of how they are to live. And so when Galatians 3.17 says, this is what I mean, Paul says, the law which came 430 years afterward does not nullify a covenant. He's saying, remember we talked about Abraham. Promise, blessing through offspring, covenant to seal that promise. Centuries later, then comes the law through Moses. And now the law adds requirements. Requirements of sacrifice, requirements of celebration of feasts, requirement of circumcision for males, dietary requirements, the the Ten Commandments, the thing that we think about most when we think about God giving the law up on Sinai, we picture that moment when God delivers the Ten Commandments through Moses. So think about what we've got so far. Man is created, he rebels, he is under God's just judgment for his rebellion, and the penalty for that is death. God, however, has given a promise through Abraham. There will be an offspring of yours who will provide blessing to all peoples. So there's, there's hope beyond this. And here's the covenant to assure it. And then comes God's law. In fact, verses 19 and 20 describe the giving of God's law, and it's one of the little insight that the Old Testament doesn't go into great detail on, which is how it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, An intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What he's talking about there is somehow angels were involved in the giving of the law to Moses and from Moses to the people. And so his point is the law through angels, through Moses, now to the descendants of Abraham. What Paul is, is doing here in Galatians 3, why he's building this history, is, is he, he's hoping at this point we're seeing some comparison. We're seeing the promise that was given directly by God to Abraham. God calls Abraham. He speaks to Abraham. I will bless you. Through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. God displays to Abraham directly his covenant assuring it. The, the law now is given through intermediaries, through angels, through Moses. And and Paul's point is, the promise is superior to the law. The promise came directly. The promise came first. The promise was God's word. The promise cannot be invalidated. It can't be annulled because it is the word of God that God not only spoke as a promise, but then added a covenant to him, swearing himself to it, to assure that this is what I will do. The law comes centuries later. Verse 19 gives us some insight into the law when it asks that question, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. All right, here's the question. Why does Paul give this history lesson? Some of us are just history buffs. We like a little history, so is Paul just sort of giving us history for the sake of history. Why does Paul give this history lesson? Remember who he's writing to. Believers who are young in the faith, who are largely Gentiles in the churches at Galatia, who now have Jewish false teachers coming to them after Paul has preached the gospel, and who are twisting this very message. They are now taking the law and putting it over top of the promise. They are now saying, so you've, you've gotten this promise of salvation, eternal life, hope in Christ, they are taking the law and making that the dominant theme. you got to obey. you got to do works. you got to do all this in order for the promise to be fulfilled. And so now suddenly the promise, fulfillment of it, is dependent on obedience to the law. Galatians 3 is saying, no way. God's promise was not contingent on man's behavior. God's promise was not, Abraham, if you do this... It should work out for you. It was, I will do this. I will bless all the peoples of the earth through you, and I swear to it. I assure you of it. Let me give an illustration. we got a lot of kids in here for this, this month of July, and you're, you're laboring through listening to a sermon. So let me, let me speak to you kids in particular. What, what's tonight? What starts tonight? Is it as loud as you guys? It's your chance to speak up loud in church. What's tonight? VBS, all right. We've been talking about VBS for a couple months now, right? Talking about VBS starts on July 14th, and it's going to be fun, and it's going to be exciting, and it's going to be teaching in God's Word, and there's going to be games and crafts and snacks. And we've been, we've been talking about VBS. It starts tonight, right? And So I come up here today, and I, I assure you again that, God willing, as long as the Lord doesn't come back this afternoon... VBS is tonight at six o'clock. All right, I am I am giving you as best I can from a human perspective a promise of VBS tonight at six o'clock. Cool, right? Suppose at the end of the service we get all done and we sing the last song, and Mr. Jeans right before he closes in prayer says, "Hey, oh, wait a minute, gotta add something here for you guys. Um, that, that the whole VBS thing. It's, it's tonight, but kids, here's what you got to do." When you go home this afternoon, you gotta obey your mom and dad. And that means you gotta you gotta eat lunch with veggies, salad, if if mom makes salad, (laughs) beans, if that's part of the deal. If expected of you, you gotta take a nap this afternoon, right? And whatever chores mom and dad have for you, you gotta do those chores, okay? So so you got some diet stuff which you gotta eat, you gotta nap, you gotta do your chores. And if you do all that, there'll be VBS tonight. If you don't do all that, sorry. You can get here at 6 o'clock tonight, and you didn't take your nap, and you didn't eat your veggies, and the lights are out, and the door is shut to you because, sorry, the promise just got beat because you didn't keep the rules. Wouldn't that be sad? Oh, now, so, so let me encourage you kids. If you have to take a nap, still go ahead and do it, and eat your veggies, and do the chores. I'm not trying to somehow say to, you don't have to do all that. But... What that's doing is saying, here's a promise, but the promise is now based on this, and it's your performance, and whether or not you do all these things to get it. Paul's saying, no. No, that's not what the law did. The law does not come in and overturn the promise or threaten to annul the promise. The promise stands, and so the question that the reader asks in verse 19 is, well, then why the law? If I already know that I've got the promise... Through the offspring of Abraham, and God's already said, why the do's and the don'ts? Why the feasts? Why the dietary restrictions? Why all the stuff in the law? One thing we know that it's not for, verse 21 says it can't give life. If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Paul's already disproven that, so we know it's not to give life. So look at verse 22 again. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. God's law, it says, acts as a kind of prison guard, a kind of guardian. It, it holds captive. It, it keeps you in a certain place, bound in a certain place. And, and so John Stott describes, he's talking about God's promise to rescue and bless the people for himself, and he describes it as a pearl. And, and Stott writes, people cannot see the beauty of the pearl because they have no conception of the filth of the pigsty by pigsty, what he's talking about is our hearts. He's talking about our rebellion against God, our thoughts, our actions, the things that we do that are selfish and self-centered and and opposed to God. And and he's saying the pearl doesn't look nearly as magnificent when we don't actually see the, the pigsty, when we don't actually see that evil is Resident in our hearts, and that we need a savior. And so, Stott writes, "No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself." You see what he's what he's saying at this point is the gospel is glorious, but the reason that we see the gospel is glorious is because the law shows us our hearts. It shows us that we are rebels who are condemned by the law and stand guilty before God. And so, Stott finishes and says, It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear, and it's only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. What shows me that God is holy and perfect and sinless? It is God's revelation of himself in his word, primarily throughout the Old Testament in his law, where we see his perfection, his standard for right wrong, what he calls us to as as in obedience. And and so it it is when I see the law and I see what God has mandated that I now see my own life in contrast to that law, and I now see my utter inability to keep that law. My words, my actions, my thoughts, they are dishonest, they are angry, they are shameful, and all of that makes me see the glory of God in his sinless holiness, and now it sees me as guilty. And so that's why he describes here the law puts us in a form of bondage. It essentially, God's law says you are condemned because God is holy and you are not. The only just condemnation, punishment for that is death, is separation from God. Apart from God's law, it is the same as being sick having symptoms and, and you know something is wrong and you feel pain and you feel sickness and you have no way to diagnose it. All the tests, everything that's done cannot diagnose what it is. And so all, all that can be done now is just sort of treating symptoms, sort of numbing pain because we haven't diagnosed what the sickness is. Something's not right but I can't treat it because I don't know what it is. And that's what God's law does. That's what God's law does for that that sense, before you trusted in Christ, that sense of guilt, that sense of shame, that sense of meaninglessness in life, that sense of there's got to be something more to life than this. And what God's law does is it takes those symptoms and it diagnoses it and says, it's because there's a holy creator And you are not right with him. You must be made right with this creator. The cure you need is to address the sin that is condemning you and the judgment that you face because of it. And so the law, the Passover celebration that's prescribed in the law, the sacrifices, all of that is meant to keep hammering home. You are sick. You are in need of a cure. And that cure comes from God through his promise, through Abraham, to his offspring who is Jesus Christ. Apart from that, you remain in this sickness and sin. You need something outside of you to to save you. With the diagnosis, with the law, we now understand what the cure is. We now understand what God requires, and that is faith. In the promised one, who is Jesus Christ, and so that's his point when he says here, um, verse twenty-two: the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were held captive. He's not saying that that there was nobody saved. Prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, but what he's pointing to is they are all waiting. There's, there's some object of faith. There's something, there's a promise that they've put their trust in. They are still saved by faith in the promise, but they haven't seen it fulfilled yet. And that's what they're waiting for. Hold, hold that thought. Look at chapter 4, just the first three verses. He's going to use another kind of illustration to make his point. He says, chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This is just Paul using a different illustration to to make the same point he's already made. He says, imagine a child, and, and the will designates him as the heir. So to that child belongs the estate. The problem is he's still a child, And so he doesn't actually own the estate. He doesn't reap the benefits of the estate at that point. It's just a promise right now that's on paper. And so that's why he compares the child to a slave, because when it comes to that estate, neither one of them has any ownership rights at that point. The one's got it on paper, but neither one of them actually possess anything until the date set when the inheritance becomes his, and so that acts like a, it's like a guard. He doesn't own that estate until the date set by his father. When he reaches this age, then he receives the inheritance. Then he, he, he gets the fullness of it, but for now, it's as if he's under guardian. He's still looking forward to it, all right? Looking forward to, and here we get to Galatians 4, verse 4, and that a verse that shows up on a lot of Christmas cards, appropriately so, Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. There it is. There's... There's the decisive moment. Paul's been doing this history lesson saying there's just this wait, there's this anticipation, there's this. There's this immaturity about their faith at this point because it's based on a promise and they don't yet know what that exactly looks like. There must be something that they are anticipating that the feasts and the sacrifices keep pointing forward to some sinless, perfect sacrifice that will take the weight of sin and experience the wrath of God and now be the Savior. And they are waiting in faith, waiting for God's fulfillment. And here is Paul saying, the son doesn't yet have the property, doesn't yet enjoy it, but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, and Jesus Christ bore our wrath on the cross, and he died in our place. So that becomes the decisive moment of freedom. All of those prior to Christ looked forward to that. We look back to that moment of the gospel, the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. The Son of God took on flesh, lived a sinless life. He came, and in fact it describes here, he lived in obedience to the law. He did what no man had done before and none since. He lived in perfect obedience to God's law and completely fulfills it. And in his dying on the cross, Jesus takes Our punishment took the weight of our guilt and the the bondage caused by our sin and the shame of our rebellion, and Jesus Christ took all of that from us and put it on himself so that in him he might endure the wrath of God that we deserve, so that he would stand in our place and experience the punishment that we deserve, so that... We might know freedom so that we might be set free from captivity, so that we might, through Christ, now as he describes here, be adopted as sons, as heirs of God, as children of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you and I would still be held under the oppressive, unrelenting condemnation of the law. We would still be guilty and that's all we'd have no way of alleviating that guilt no way of somehow doing away with that guilt we would be under the weight of the law and there would be no hope because of the curse and the penalty of the law which mandates death that's that we would just be biding our time waiting to experience eternal death but in the fullness of time god sent forth his son that he might bear what we deserve and not only set us free to make us children of god But as he also points out in here, to make us children of Abraham. So wait, this goes back to the promise. Remember the promise? In you, in your offspring, Abraham, there will be blessing for all the families of the earth. He's saying to the Galatians, those who are Gentiles, they have no no physical descendancy from Abraham whatsoever. And Paul is saying, now you are a son of Abraham and an heir. You cry out, Abba, Father. No one needs to come along and say, nah, it's, it's our God, and you can only have him through whatever we tell you to do. He says, remember the promise, in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's not just the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's all the families. It's a promise that extends to every ethnic group all over the world. And that's why, if you go back to chapter 3, last few verses, and we'll just hit this quickly. This fruit now of of what this promise means, verse 25, but now that faith has come, now that the object of that faith who is Christ has come and died and risen again, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Amen, we should say, in response to what he just says there. You all... Now that faith has come, you're not under guardian in Christ Jesus. You all are sons and daughters of God. Remember the Jewish teachers coming to the Gentiles in Galatia saying, yeah, you can go ahead and believe in our Messiah, but you can't actually be made right with him until you become like one of us, until you're circumcised and you follow our rules and jump through our hopes. And here is the word of God in Galatians chapter 3 saying, no, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are now a child of God and a son of Abraham according to that promise. That is a, a marvelous statement in Galatians 3. Let me take just a second, just one quick bonus on the side, on verse 27. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ and put on Christ. We have a tendency when we see the word baptism in the New Testament to automatically think of the practice of water baptism and think that must be what, that's what baptism means, it's water baptism. And I, I just, be, we need to be careful here. Paul has just been hammering home the point that no man is made right before God by virtue of circumcision. Remember the whole case of Titus. He brought Titus. Titus was not circumcised. His whole point was, no, you didn't need to do some... Bonus physical act in order to be redeemed. And so we need to be really careful that we don't take out of this and you need to be baptized in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying here. The Greek word for baptized means to immerse in, to identify with, to to dye something, to take a piece of fabric that's white, dye it in purple dye. It's now completely identified with that color purple, right? Because it's been immersed in it. That's what the root word means, to color a piece of fabric. Water baptism Is the symbol, it's the picture of the spiritual union, baptism, of our identification with Christ. and That's what he's emphasizing in verse 27, that you were baptized, identified, immersed into Christ. He says the same thing, you can look at it in Romans 6 where he talks about baptism there. It's not talking about water baptism, it's talking about the spiritual reality that water baptism pictures. You are now joined in Christ and identified with him. And so Galatians 3.27 is essentially saying all of you who by faith were immersed in Jesus Christ are now clothed in Christ. If you were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ so that God the Father, the judge of all the universe, the one who establishes the law and under whose law we would otherwise be condemned now, because you have been joined with Christ, sees you clothed in Christ. Christ identified with him. All of you. That's why he stresses it in, in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, children of God. He says it again at the end of verse 28, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That One of the chief implications, one of the fruits of this freedom that, that Paul is trying to stress here to the Galatian believers that we desperately need is this trust in Jesus Christ and this hope and the promise given to the offspring is not for one ethnic group, it's not for one male over female, it's not for one social class, it's not for one specific group of people who get it and, and others are not invited in some way. You come to God and are made right before God from the very same ground and that is trusting in Jesus Christ. I, I quote again John Stott, we are equal. Equal in our need of salvation, equal in our inability to earn or to it and equal in the fact that God offers it to us freely in Christ. Once we have received it, our equality is transformed into a fellowship, the brotherhood which only Christ can create. That's what we have as believers in Jesus Christ. The, the, the distinctions between male and female still exist. The differences in our ethnicities are, are, are still plain. They are still there. The biblical teaching on submission and eldership uh, leadership, I'm sorry, is, is not erased. We're not blinded to those things or, or those distinctions are not made meaningless by these things. but what it's saying is, now as believers in Jesus Christ, our eyes are open to see, the fact that we are together before Christ we all come on the same ground we are one we all desperately need a savior we are all sinners who are guilty all of the beneath all of those differences we are all intrinsically the same fallen sinners in need of redemption from a perfect savior who gave his life as a ransom for sinners and we all come on the same ground by virtue of faith in Christ so nothing about who i am or where I live, or what I do makes me more or less able to commend myself to God because I have nothing on which to commend myself to God. I can't come to God with any kind of resume. I can only come on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And it is to him that I cling, and the point that he's saying here is also to one another. We're going to apply that here in, in, in the Lord's table because the gospel of Jesus Christ not only makes us free from the bondage of sin, but it makes us children of God, and joint heirs with one another, brothers and sisters with one another who have all come on the same ground. And that, and that should humble us, and, and the, that should reflect our unity. Pastor Stewart preached about this back in January. We were talking about ethnic differences. Scripture's not, not commanding at this place, hey, you're, you all need to act like one. It's saying that that is the case. You are all one in Christ. You're going to live that out now, As you love one another and serve one another, in spite of all the differences by which the world seeks to distinguish and divide people and and cause friction, you are one in Christ. Live in the glory of that unity and love one another deeply as Christ has called us to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. Thank you that as we are gathered around the Lord's table even now as we are worshiping together this morning. There are brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe who are worshiping you, same Lord, same Spirit, same Savior. We thank you for the oneness that we share with them in Christ. Thank you that we can be a a distinctly different people who, who live as those who love one another deeply because we recognize very humbly what Jesus Christ has done in us and for us. Pray that if there's anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, we ask that you would extend your grace this day, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would believe in Jesus Christ alone for hope for eternity. Thank you that you have come, Jesus, and you have accomplished the work in our place and taken our our guilt and our shame.